Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi there, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, coming from the Corinthia Hotel in London, I'll look at the enduring emotional and economic impact on tourism from Queen Elizabeth and talk about all the pomp and circumstance with Andrew Wallace, director of the Guards Museum in London. It's a fascinating conversation that proves the point that no one does funerals better than the Brits. Then I'll speak with Simon Calder, the senior travel correspondent of The Independent, on his global view of the travel industry and what we can expect moving into the new year. And then I'll round out my look at the Royals with Victoria Mather, the travel correspondent for Airmail and longtime Royal Watcher, who doesn't exactly hold back on what she thinks. First up, Andrew Wallace. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. 
Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Andrew Wallace, welcome, sir. Thank you very much indeed, Peter. So let's talk about the Guards Museum. How old is it, first of all? Uh, it depends in which formation that you're talking. It goes way, way back probably to the 1950s. Uh, Which makes it not that old. Well, (laughs) in relation to my knees, which are (laughs) nearly 400 years old, no, no, it really isn't. But uh, uh, it moved to its current location in 1988. They redeveloped Wellington Barracks, and whereas it used to be... Explain where Wellington Barracks is. Okay, Wellington Barracks is uh, about a a one wood away from um, Buckingham Palace itself, and it is the location for, for the, uh, the five regiments of foot guards. They base themselves there and they mount the iconic, world-famous ceremony of changing the guard at Buckingham Palace from that uh, barrack complex. And, of course, they were very, very involved in the Queen's Jubilee. Indeed. Absolutely. And, of course, when the Queen passed away, they were very involved. I think it's not unfair to say we, I think we, we became the envy of the world that day the way the military said goodbye to uh, our sovereign lady was absolutely phenomenal. I have to tell you this, and I'm not saying it in a cavalier way, but nobody does funerals better than the Brits. Um, It's an odd thing to be famous for, but you're absolutely right. And in one of my uh, storerooms, I have the printed instructions of all the the royal funerals going back to Victoria, Queen Victoria, um, we've got uh, the the written instructions for Winston Churchill's funeral, which. Um, but in terms of the Queen's funeral, many of those instructions came from her. Oh, absolutely, and I always thought it was slightly unfair because it's a, a somber parade. They march slowly. It's not slow marching; it is actually quick marching done slowly, and it's a very odd sound. And when the military bands practice it, the Queen would have sat at her desk in Buckingham Palace and cocked an ear and thought, I know what they're doing. Uh, How so weird. That's a little weird. It, it really, really is. I was actually sat in the Major General's office, the Major General commanding the household division. Whose household? Her Majesty's household. So the head guardsman in London, if you like. We were sat in his office when Operation London Bridge was declared. And I said to, I said, General, would you like to cancel this meeting? He said, my dear boy, no. I hate people who panic. He said, we've had 40 years to prepare for this. We know what we're doing. If we get the call, we'll carry on. But uh, until that time, we'll proceed with this meeting. And the call came through. And he said, would you forgive me one moment? And he basically declared London Bridge is a go. And that... You know, I, and you I, were there. I have basically served that woman for all of my adult life in one form or another, either as a volunteer soldier, um, commanding one of her royally warranted bodyguards, running the guards museum. None of us knew life without her. She was the only queen you knew. Absolutely. And I really don't think most of us have processed it yet. We know she's gone, but it's still not real. And... The, the briefing book for her funeral was not a thin book. No, 
Absolutely not. I mean, everything to the second was planned out. Absolutely. And exactly where all the uniforms would be, because a lot of the uniforms that were, were needed are not worn that frequently by a, a lot of the soldiers who were in the parade. So you've got to know that in room XYZ, if you turn the key, you will find 100 sets of number one dress uniform. Hopefully uh, they can fit into them. Well, they select the guys to fit the uniforms now. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they'd have to do that. But yeah. even in America, there are briefing books. Uh, when President Carter passes away, when President Bush passes away, when President Clinton passes away, Trump, Obama, yeah. books for everybody. Absolutely. And the Duke of Edinburgh had a massive role uh, in the planning of his own funeral. I have a question about that funeral. Yes, sir. His casket was carried on a Land Rover that he designed. Correct. Am I, a beautiful British Army Green Land Rover whose only, the only function of it, right, yeah. was that. Yeah. Where is that truck today? It's back with, uh, I believe it's back with Land Rover as a company. Did you know there were two Land Rovers? Explain. During that funeral, you had the Land Rover with the, the driver and the co-driver um, with his coffin on the back in the stables at Windsor. An identical Rover was sat there with the engine ticking over with two soldiers ready to go. If there'd been a problem with the first vehicle, the other one would have been run alongside and the coffin would have been swapped over. Now that's planning. 100% redundancy. Everything has a spare. The bearer party that carried the sovereign during her funeral, they were pulled out of Iraq. They were deployed in Iraq. Queen's Company Grenadier Guards, they were pulled back. Two teams of ten. Eight bearers, the conducting warrant officer and the officer in charge. And each of those had a spare. What about the horses? Horses, slightly more difficult, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, well... Yeah. But it went off, it, literally, it went off without a hitch, almost to the second. It was foot perfect. And, you know, those guys are to be praised um, because somebody once said to me, why do you have military bands? Military bands give voice to the emotions of the nation at moments of great joy and moments of great sadness. And our military bands, who they, they're desperately trying to cut all the time, they gave voice to our nation's grief uh, on that great parade. And I know many of the musicians personally, and they were literally on their knees by the end of it. People think we have a massive army. We really don't. And when they waved goodbye to her just outside Apsley House... They said, isn't it wonderful they've chosen a route down through South London to, so that more people can wave goodbye to her? That wasn't the case at all. They closed the M4 so that all the troops that waved goodbye to her at Apsley House were thrown onto coaches, shot down the M4 to Windsor to receive her at the other end. <laughs> so uh, it's all smoke and mirrors. The last time I saw you... You were actually had the troops on display, right? How much does one of those hats weigh? Not as much as you'd think. And the But they're big hats. They are big hats. 
you know, man has always worn animal skin to make himself look taller, wider, more fearsome in battle. And this is no different. There is a long and uh, interesting story as to why guardsmen wear them on their heads. And it all dates back to the Battle of Waterloo. The guards fought so well and so proudly at that battle that six weeks after the battle the Prince Regent and the Duke of Wellington issued a decree to say to mark the role the guards played in this battle they would be allowed to wear the headdress of their vanquished enemy it was the French Imperial Old Guard who used to wear bearskins that was Napoleon absolutely they're all made from Canadian brown bear Canada was the French Dominion that's how all that links in so uh, the 13 inch high bearskin <laughs> it weighs less than a pound come on no they're very light you put them on, and I was like, oh, this is wonderfully light. You wear it for four hours in summer, and then come back and tell me it's very light. You know, it's, it's, there's a real skill to wearing them. There and is. you will see guardsmen flicking their heads forward, because it, it is literally held on your head by the, the, the little cap that sits inside the bearskin cage. Uh, and depending on how tight you cinch up the little string at the top, it decides where it sits on your head. And in summer, as you get hotter and your head expands, it starts to get a bit tight. So you'll see bearskin, uh, you'll see guardsmen flicking their bearskins just to move it around and just release a bit of pressure from time to time. And how long did you wear that hat? Well, I was never a guardsman. I was too short and too intelligent to uh, be a guardsman. <laughs> but uh, you've worn it. By, absolutely, because my regiment was the Honourable Artillery Company, uh, always a volunteer soldier. And we were given our charter by King Henry VIII in 1537. So we've been around the block a few times. And King William IV had two favourite regiments. One was the Grenadier Guards and one was my regiment, the Honourable Artillery Company. So he decreed that my regiment should wear the same uniform as the Grenadier Guards. So I've been wearing the uniform, uh, well, 18 years I, I served um, before. I had to concentrate on investment banking. Because, uh, <laughs> My boss decided I, I shouldn't be playing soldiers quite as much as I was. So, uh, But you still do because you're the director of the museum. Indeed. What's the biggest surprise of that museum when people come to visit? We have some wonderful things from the turning points of great British history. And I think at the moment, one of the stories they really love is the fact that we have the uniform of King Edward VIII, the king who abdicated in favour of the woman he loved, an American divorcee. Who knew that was going to be a thing again? The Duke of Windsor. The Duke of Windsor. And it came to us from the flat in Paris where the Duchess of Windsor lived. Uh, and when she died, the Prince of Wales gave it to us on the strict understanding it would not go on display until his grandmother had died because she went to her grave never forgiving either Wallace Simpson or Edward VIII for effectively killing her husband by putting him on the throne. And that So you're telling me it's on display? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. To what extent did that television series, The Crown, impact attendance at your museum? I think the vast majority of Americans who came through our doors had um, avidly watch every second of uh, the, the, the series that have been uh, released so far. I think as a series, it's kind of lost its way. And it, it, it was so close to fact in the first two series. They've now gone off piste slightly with, um, dare I say, some, uh, some fiction added in. 
which is unfair in the extreme. But I will tell you, I, I agree with you. The first couple of seasons, I was fascinated by their attention to detail, that they did their homework in terms of little things that I would pick up, like what the airplane looked like, or what the clothing looked like, or what the, what the cars looked like. Peter, they came to the museum. They wanted to photograph and to measure every dimension on the Queen's uniform that she wore to Trooping the Colour because uh, they wanted to make sure that Olivia Coleman's uniform, when she wore it, was absolutely correct in every detail. And was it? It was, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Just amazing stuff. How often is the museum open during the week? Uh, currently, we're open Monday to Friday. Um, the pandemic saw the back of uh, all of our volunteer, uh, wonderful team of volunteers. We're now slowly rebuilding that team, and we hope to go seven days a week uh, relatively soon. So uh, there we are. Well, it's well worth the visit. And if Andrew is willing, and only if he's willing, he might just let you wear the hat. <laughs> Without any problem at all. Um, <laughs> and we actively encourage people to put on the Queen's uniform, or now the King's uniform, and have their photograph taken. Um, we don't allow them to uh, muck about and be silly. If you're wearing the Queen's uniform, you're going to. We teach them how to stand to attention properly. We teach them how to salute properly, and many, many families have gone away with their Christmas cards sorted out because all of the family are in guardsmen's tunics. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a joy to watch. Andrew Wallace, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Great stories, and great history, and great pageantry. Indeed, um, as you may have gathered, I'm passionate about it. I'm a huge fan of our country, and uh, the more I can encourage. Uh, the people who listen to your podcast to come and visit us, the happier I will be. My thanks to Andrew. Simon Calder is always on point when it comes to global travel, and I never go to London without hearing what he has to say, especially when it comes to the surprising and continuing demand for travel, without regard to price. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution. Personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back. Oh, Peter, it's great to see you and your team here in London. And what a time we're living through. I, I genuinely, I'm talking to everybody, the airlines, the hotels. They say we are just absurdly busy. Let's Anything talk about that because it's December and it's January as well. A time of the year that normally is a very soft travel period. Every plane is full. Hotels, you can't get a room, right? Can you explain this? Well, 
It's it's a question of um, something the Germans called Nachholbedarf, which means approximately pent up demand, the desire to do again all those things that you wanted you, you you used to do and could do for a while uh you, you were prevented from doing but now you want to do it again now pent-up demand is one thing and you can absolutely imagine particularly since the us and the uk were separated for 19 months because of the uh presidential um declaration that we would not be allowed in from the uk of course people with loved ones there um would want to flood back in but hang on that was a year ago and here we are and the planes are even fuller than than ever uh, and i think it is not not so much pent-up demand it's reinforced demand we've remembered how much joy comes from travel we just want to do more of it and right now the travel industry does not have the capacity to still have been to various airports around uh, uh, the world still uh, aircraft Half the Cathay Pacific fleet seems to be in Alice Springs in Australia. You've got a whole lot of aircraft down in Lourdes in southern France and, of course, over at Victorville in California. There's um, uh, many, many aircraft there. So at the moment, it's actually a really good time to be a travel provider because you are getting fantastic um, yields, great prices, whether that's for an airfare, whether it's for a hotel room. Things will Reach you know, as a of, travel provider, yeah. people are not price sensitive. They're paying whatever they whatever the market's going to bear. And I think maybe if you go back to 2019, we that was probably the golden age for the traveller in terms of sheer value, intense competition. That has now changed and we just have to get used to the idea of paying uh, 25, 50, maybe 100% more than we did before, but we're going to enjoy it. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> I <laughs> mean... A ticket that should be two hundred and seventy-eight dollars from New York City to Madison, Wisconsin, is now a thousand. Yes, and the planes are full. So my question to you is: We understand that people are not being price sensitive. We know they're going to pay whatever it costs to travel because they can't be denied. How do you sustain that? Uh, well, you you can't sustain the high prices in the long term because, of course, travel being incredibly competitive and entrepreneurial, there will be somebody coming in. Um, you know, if, if any uh, airline, I mean, maybe Breeze, the uh, latest airline from David Neilman, if, if they're seeing regularly people paying $1,000 to get from New York City to uh, Madison, Wisconsin, then, well, they will be moving in. And that's going to be replicated everywhere. But, of course, you can't just press a button after a global pandemic and say, OK, everybody back to normal. It's not going to work like that. You've still got, and this is really affecting people um, in East Asia all the way down to Australasia, and it's even having an impact on the aviation market here because the Chinese airlines, which previously kind of provided the floor for um, flights, say, from London to Sydney in Australia, they they are simply not at the races anymore Cathay Pacific, much weaker than it used to be, very sadly. I hope they will come back. And so, therefore, there's not the capacity. Uh, the prices are, 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 are staying high. But ultimately, you know and I know, it's very cyclical. High prices being made. Everybody piles in. And hopefully, in a year or two, we'll be talking about what amazing deals there are for November 2024. Well, we better be talking about that because my, my consideration is this. People are not being price sensitive, right? We already established that. They're spending money like there's no tomorrow. But at a certain point, they reach a point of diminishing returns 
where they have to make a choice. Are we going to buy a trip, mm-hmm. new clothing, new car, new appliances, new electronics? And they're already starting to make those choices. Guess what? They're doing the trip. Yes. They're not buying the clothing. They're not buying the luxury item. They're not buying the new car. They're, de- they're deferring a lot of retail at the very moment it's the high Christmas shopping season. And I, I believe that we're going to start seeing reports now that we're starting a new year that retail didn't do so well. Yep, uh, absolutely, because uh, we realized how important it was to have experiences during lockdown. It wasn't, you know, yes, of course you can buy a new car if you want one, but that's what, what's that really going to bring you? Um, a trip to the other side of the world to immerse yourself in different cultures, to eat fantastic food, to have amazing adventures. That is what really counts, and I think we are far more aware of that than we were in 2019. But let me take it now to the next level, which is the redefinition, perhaps, of the business model of travel and how people pay for it. Because people had a lot of you know, savings that they could use because they weren't spending money than they were. But now they've reached the point where how are they going to pay for it? Well, credit cards. Or all these new financial models that are coming into the market where you can do like a layaway plan right? So if I go on United Airlines website, they'll come up to me and say, okay, your ticket's 1500 bucks, but you can pay 32 bucks a month. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and so we're seeing Citibank starting to finance travel, a group called Uplift financing travel, other companies traveling, uh, financing travel. But at a certain point, somebody's got to pay the bill. Sure, right. but but we are getting back to the twentieth century here, aren't we? The idea that you 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 have something that you very much desire, and my goodness me, we desire travel at the moment, and you are prepared to make a regular contribution in order to secure that. And how much better to be anticipating a great uh, adventure than just to be thinking, okay, well, we got a new new car or a new piece of a new household appliance, it's, uh, it doesn't give you quite the same thrill. So what you're saying from an addictive personality perspective is that, you know what, if I'm going to go bankrupt, I'll do it while traveling. Oh, <laughs> so, sure, yeah. And, and we haven't yet confronted the, 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 all the problems with inflation, with um, possibility of recession, which we're certainly seeing uh, in Europe, uh, the so-called cost of living crisis here. We don't know how that will play out. But I just, I do... Uh, having spent some decades in this game, uh, certainly from a British perspective, I mean, I can remember right back to the mid-1980s when the pound was effectively just worth $1. We still travelled. We still loved going to America. We just found ways of doing it so that we could just about afford to uh, to be there. And, of course, we, we tried to trim back uh, while we were there. I have many happy memories of the YMCA in Manhattan. <laughs> Let's, let's have some fun. Let's talk about the hot spots for 2023. You want to start? Because I've got my list too. Okay, fine. Well, let, let, let's trade. I'm going to give you three to start off with the Baltic republics of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. Yes, they are in deep freeze at the moment. And it won't be till April still they, until they really come out of their hibernation. But my goodness, those three countries have so much history, so much diversity, fantastic capital cities, particularly Tallinn in Estonia. And my 
my goodness, the kind of value that you thought we'd left behind decades ago. I tell people, you think you're going to beautiful Stockholm or Copenhagen, forget it. Particularly <laughs> if you're British, go to Tallinn instead. You'll have very much a similar experience, but um, uh, for a f- fraction of the price. Go on. Is the dollar still strong there? Oh, of course, the dollar's strong everywhere. Yes, the the dollar is is king. As all right, uh, so you gave me the what Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Lithuania. Yeah. Okay, now I'll give you one. Yeah. Which is frozen right now, but now's the time to go. Not too far away from them, Bulgaria. Ah. You know okay. why? Yeah. Ski resorts that people don't even know about. The most affordable ski season ever is in Bulgaria. I absolutely uh, will we'll, uh, take your word for that. A great value. Basically, if you any of us who can remember the Iron Curtain through Germany, anywhere to the east of that still represents pretty good value. So that means, of course, Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary, Slovakia, Romania, and of course, Bulgaria. Not forgetting those um, beautiful Baltic republics. And now, I got well, that was one I gave you. I'll give you a second one. Only because they've devalued their currency about 95 times in the last three years. They've gotten rid of every central banker they ever hired. That's Turkey. Yes. Uh, Extraordinary um, success from the European point of view. Bear in mind that they used to get an awful lot of tourists from Russia and from Ukraine. And they clearly are not uh, traveling in anything like significant numbers at the moment to Turkey. But they are proving very, very popular again budget destination because of the repeated devaluations of the lira and also i reckon turkey is a wonderful stopover uh, on the way to maybe central asia and my next next call port of call is um, uzbekistan um, former soviet republic but i've been to all but i think two of the soviet republics <coughs> and effectively uzbekistan is just another world have you been i have but let's talk about the stands have you been to kazakhstan Uh, kazakhstan yeah vast and empty i would say that's their brochure i think (laughs) (laughs) all right azerbaijan azerbaijan my goodness now that's a different that's a different well it is and and what i love about baku is it was original it was the original version of i don't know dubai so this yeah but with soviet architecture yeah extraordinary oil oil capital with um with a soviet uh, imprint fascinating and of course uh, neighboring uh, armenia and georgia all of which are accessible now uh, they are, yes. It, uh, they were very much on my itinerary back in 2020. I was planning a journey from Georgia into Armenia. Um, and I will, I will get to do that again. And uh, it will obviously be fantastic when you and I can talk about returning to Ukraine. And it's going to be very, very important uh, for the country when it finally um, achieves peace that we do go back as tourists because that's a great way to rebuild any nation. You know, it's interesting. All those countries or those republics that we've mentioned, they share one other thing in common. Because as they emerged from the old Soviet bloc, what's the very first thing each one of them did? They started an airline. <laughs> they found like an yes. old used DC-10 and yep. said, okay, we're flying. They needed that flag carrier. Without the airlift, they couldn't do anything. Well, um, uh, I'm not sure if... Yeah, absolutely, I agree with you. Not sure how... In, in, how good shape the airlines are from that part of the world because um, uh, flying old DC 10s or whatever. Well, they're not flying the DC 10s yeah, now. But, but a, a old aircraft in small numbers are very expensive to run, which is why the world's most successful airlines have very large numbers of very new aircraft. Exactly. But 
if you take a look at Azerbaijan and their airline, you take a look at Uzbekistan or even Ukraine, they were getting new aircraft uh, even in Ukraine before the Russians invaded. Sure, and and uh, anything which helps to open up the world is um, absolutely terrific. But there's also other ways to travel. And Uzbekistan, and you might have tried this, has Central Asia's first high-speed rail link. And it goes from Tashkent, which is the highly amusing, very friendly capital, which is um, uh, an extraordinarily Soviet place still um, decades yeah, after. Yeah, that the train station the there. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it carries on to Samarkand, beautiful Silk Road city, and then even deeper into uh, history, into Bukhara. And that's the end of the line for now. But if you get on a slower train, you can wind up your way to Khiva on the Turkmenistan border, which is quite simply the most glorious place I've ever been. Why? Because you have, in the middle of uh, desert, this extraordinary um, walled city, still walled, um, still survived decades of Soviet oppression with a wonderful collection of mosques and minarets in perfect condition. And it's tranquil, it's beautiful, it's friendly, great food, great drink. You arrive there and it's as though all the cares in the world have disappeared. Just uh, enjoy. So, OK, we've done all the stands. Right. Although I'll give you one piece of advice if you're going to take the train in those areas, especially at this time of the year, dress warmly. <laughs> what and, happened to you? Well, they haven't really discovered heating systems on the trains. I mean, it's the layered look, and I've, I'm wearing five of them. <laughs> but you know what? It's still a great experience. Sure. Okay, uh, so what of the new hot destinations in 2023 would be your surprise destination? Senegal in West Africa. Dakar. Yeah, Dakar, the uh, capital of Senegal, the most, if I'm not mistaken, most easterly city and certainly very close to the most easterly point on the entire African continent. And of course, you will know that it was um, previously a really important refueling stop. For South from, African Airways. From, uh, yeah. For, you stopped uh, in Dakar because you couldn't make it all the way back. And, and similarly, uh, Air France Concorde going to Rio, can you believe? They couldn't get all the way there, so they had to uh, refuel very noisily in Dakar too. So so Europe's biggest travel company, TUI, has got hotel interests there. They've just started putting on new flights from the UK. It's becoming a mainstream destination. And of course, you've got this wonderful combination of superb weather, great food, and a lot of French colonial charm there. Still, Dakar is a very elegant city. Senegal itself, so much to discover in and the right interior. And right on the water. Yeah. In fact, the old days, it was a regular stop on the round-the-world route from Pan Am. Was it? Oh, yeah. Goodness. And yeah, they stopped in, in, in uh, Nigeria. Yeah. They stopped in Liberia. And they stopped in uh, in Dakar. Yeah. Uh, Amazing. Uh, well, it, it's now very much back in, in, the, uh, in the mainstream. And I think West Africa as a whole gets really badly neglected by travellers. Um, sure, there are many issues. Well, to be honest, some parts of Western Africa have been very badly neglected by their own governments. Oh, very much so, I mean, yes. right now... If you were to ask me, where would you not go in, 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 just in terms of convenience and history and everything? Equatorial Guinea, probably not going to be my first stop. 
no, and there are issues with 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 health, with security in all sorts of parts of uh, West Africa. But travel is a force for good, and it can change the way that these uh, places are run. And my prediction is, in the next two years, smart travelers are not just going to go to Senegal; they're going to go to the Ivory Coast. Ah, okay. I've not been to the Ivory Coast, yeah. but I will take your recommendation for that. Yep. And then on the other end of Africa, mm-hmm. on the eastern coast, then you've got Mozambique. Yes. That is a coastline. Th- that's an amazing, you know, former Portuguese colony, just like Angola was. They're coming up. Except that I'm recording, of course, decades of civil war and strife. And I'm in Yes, but guess some- what? You know what takes the cake when it comes to civil war? It's the GDP basically provided by travel and tourism. All of a sudden, it's the economic base changes when you have travel. And that's what brought that piece to places like Mozambique. Easy to get to, easy to get around. Yeah. You know, it's interesting in Africa because they, don't have, they haven't discovered open skies yet. Yeah, quite. So, and the visa problems are there. However, if you're a smart traveler, a little bit creative, do a little extra homework in terms of the visas, you don't do one destination, you do three. And you travel within the region and it's easy. Okay, I will take up your recommendation for... Mozambique and the Ivory Coast and I will do my utmost to get there before we talk again this time next year. Now you heard me talk about Equatorial Guinea. Yeah. What's the one place you wouldn't go to? Oh uh, right now I think it would be uh, Somalia. I mean I've heard great things about it. There's a fantastic Somali community in uh, the UK but um, Mogadishu does sound like one of those places where you would go Uh, only with um, quite a significant security detail. Having said that, I was just in um, Socotra, beautiful island, actually off the coast of Somalia, part of Yemen, and in 30 years' time... Yemen? You went to Yemen? Yeah. Uh, See, that's a place I wouldn't go right now. Well, Socotra, the island, is, is, is not... Real Yemen, it doesn't have anything like the same incredibly <laughs> it's Yemen light. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And, and it is uh, an island which I very much hope will be rescued by mass tourism, but in a way that it will allow the community to uh, hang on to what they have. It's a Otherwise known as responsible tourism. Yes, very much, very much so. Well, the key to responsible tourism is sitting across from me right now. Mr. Simon Calder, the travel correspondent from The Independent. Uh, when, we, when we next talk, uh, we'll, we'll compare notes on, uh, on Yemen, Equatorial Guinea, and uh, probably Angola as well. Fantastic. And don't, don't forget, of course, many, many places closer to home. My best trip this year so far was a road trip from uh, road and rail, actually, Detroit, to Ann Arbor, to Chicago, to Milwaukee, to um, Green Bay. My thanks to Simon. I've known Victoria Mather for a few decades now. First when she was travel editor for Vanity Fair, working for legendary editor Graydon Carter. And now, continuing her work with Carter in his new editorial incarnation, Airmail. To say that she's opinionated when it comes to all things royal might be understatement, but I've come to learn that Victoria just might know what she's talking about. Hello, Victoria. Hi, Peter. Happy holidays. So, I'm, and same to you. I'm, uh, I'm sort of recovering from a year of royal tumult. Uh, I'm sort of recovering from the realization, which I think everybody finally gets, as to, you know, what did the queen mean? What does she mean now in death? She was certainly a brand. And she was certainly a revenue generator for travel and tourism as the palace continues to be today. But 
What do you, What are your thoughts on that? I love the idea of the Queen being a brand. I think she was a symbol of con- constancy, continuity, duty, and service. And they're all things which are very fragile in today's world. So I think because she was there for so long um, and always there, she became, for us, the Brits, um, everybody's grandmother. And while she was there, I mean, do you hear people say, gosh, I hope she never died. Um, While she was there, there was always something to look to which was constant. And that was very, very reassuring through what has been um, tumultuous times of change. I mean, she came to the throne um, in the Edwardian era, still very, very um, strict formality, um, very straight way of doing things. And that reign of 70 years progressed into the digital age. I mean, it's probably the most profound period of social change in history. You're right. And, you know, what's interesting is how much control she seemed to have in that, you know, decades of reign over her destiny and the, and the direction of the country. She was really in control. Well, you say that. She's the head of state, um, so, but she has no power, and we have no written constitution. So the fact is her role is symbolic. She's there. She has an audience with the prime minister, of which she saw, I think, 15. Um, He talks to her every week with those audiences, which are entirely private. She can give support. She can give advice. um, But she actually exerts no real power. Um, the power that she had was in her allegiance to the crown, to the monarchy, not to the Netflix series. Um, and that is what is so remarkable about her, that when it came to wielding power within her own family with um, the various uh, scandals um, and upheavals that have gone on, her first regard above and beyond her children was to the institution of the crown, the monarchy. And that's something that uh, continues to today with with King Charles. Yes, it will continue. Um, And it's uh, that is the one thing that they can really, the one solid thing that can be held on to the crown. Um, The institution and that has to come before everything, everything that is personal. And that's something that Charles certainly understands because he grew up with it. This is not new to him. He he was preparing for this his entire life. Yes, he must have been the longest job in waiting um, in history. Well, it is in our history anyway. He's um, way surpassed um, ever the seventh. I but, saw. I saw a very um, funny. I, cur- we- I saw a very funny cartoon. When he walked outside the, the palace where everybody was waiting to pay their respects uh, before the funeral moved, and he said to somebody, have you been waiting long? And the woman came back and said, not as long as you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's a cracker. Um, 
what he did do actually is make a fantastically good job of, of being Prince of Wales, which is a non-job. Um, but he really he's done a tremendous amount of good. The Prince's Trust has been a phenomenal force for good in terms of giving um, the young chances in life, you know, proper support, uh, proper help into jobs, into employment, into education. Um, it really has been a remarkable thing. And he's underpraised for that. And he was ahead of the curve on um, climate and eco matters. I have great admiration for him. You know, it's interesting. Chances are he's not really going to spend a lot of time in Buckingham Palace. That's where the Queen was. But in terms of ritual and tradition, they're still going to do the changing of the guard. They're still going to do the pomp and circumstance. And as we witnessed, nobody does funerals like the Brits. Your funeral I thought was amazing. So moving. I went um, in the night. Went about 2.30 in the morning um, until about 5 o'clock. And I went and saw the rehearsal of the, of the funeral because they rehearsed it every night. And I was the only person there, apart from police and security. Um, and it was, it, everything was incredibly still. Um, just, you know, just as if that whole area, Buckingham Palace, Constitution Hill, Wellington Arch, Horse Guards Parade, the mouth, that little crucible of our history was holding its breath for the big event. Um, and it was, oh, it was very moving, and the flowers and everything. Do you know all the flowers were um, taken out of the plastic before they were even put down? We learned that lesson from that sea of cellophane from Princess Wales. Um, every single flower was taken and composted for the Royal Park. And all the Paddington bears that were put out have all been laundered, um, brushed up, um, tweaked, and they've all been taken to new homes. <laughs> so we know that Prince William is now the Duke of Wales, uh, which was Prince Charles... The Prince of Wales. A uh, Prince of Wales, excuse me. Prince which, of Wales. Which was Prince Charles's former title. And now we have a situation where Meghan and Harry have cut a, a huge deal to do documentaries and productions, and we now are seeing their series of their life in California, is there any chance at all of them coming back into the fold? No, I don't think they want to. I mean, it's like an addiction, isn't it? You've got to be willing to do something about it. I don't think they would want to come back now. I mean, I think they'll want to come back for the high days and holidays, although there's already a groundswell of opinion. We would not wish them to be back for the coronation, which would be very sad. But what we've seen is such a mixed message from Meghan and Harry. I just I almost can't believe it that in the way in which you would trash your family. I'm also frightfully offended, by the way. I really am, because he's thrown the entire British people under the bus as racist. I take it rather personally. Um, he's thrown the, queen, the late Queen under the bus as for the, the Commonwealth. It's just, it's offensive. And also, it's very short-sighted because this is their one USP, isn't it? This is the thing they've got to flog. Well, how much more of it can there be? They've left, and quite clearly, they were planning to leave. I must say, I found it quite, um, on the first um, 
the documentary, I found it sort of discombobulating that Prince Harry doesn't even seem to know which day of the week it is. Oh, hi. It's Wednesday. Here I am at Heathrow Airport. Or perhaps it's Friday. Oh, God. I mean, he's a dimwit. I don't think it helps. Very, and then, of course, it's this constant war with the press. I've been reading a biography of Wallace Simpson recently, and um, for whom I've always had some admiration. I think she had a pretty raw deal, really. And she was a dignified, elegant, witty woman who was sucked into something by a weak and vacillating man. But um, I found a diary entry from one of the great diary, um, diarists of the day, Channon, Sir Henry Channon. And it describes almost exactly Prince Harry's attitude. He's writing about um, Edward VII when he was still king. And he says, the king is at his worst with Fleet Street, offhand, angry, and ungracious. He never treats them in the right way or realizes that his popularity largely depends on them. Well, hello. Um, how very true. And it's true of Harry. You don't, they were, he, he's, Completely wrong in saying that they had no protection here before Mexico. Of course they had security here as working royals. So what one's getting constantly from Montecito um, is this vacuous victimhood. And it continues. And it continues. but And it will continue. But there's going to come a point when the cupboard's bare. Isn't there? I mean, how, how wrong can you be? Uh, and if this is the only thing you have in which to enhance your brand, um, then it's a pretty negative uh, the capital to to flog. So, do you actually think I'll, I'll I'll give you a bizarre possibility that within six months Harry will be on Dancing with the Stars? There'll be a what? Harry will be a guest <laughs> star on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> oh. Gosh, that'd be hilarious. Um, what fun. Um, actually, they both dance very well. They're a winner there. Well, I've always thought there'd be two children, and at some stage, there'll be a divorce. I think he's very isolated there. I mean, who have they got? Who has he got as friends? All his sort of real friends here who were in the category of um, the Sloan Rangers, the sort of um, the, the, the sons of the aristocracy will call things like fudgy and <laughs> twinky and chappy and, you know, all those sort of PG Woodhouse names. They've all been excised by her, by Meghan. And now he's expected to call George Clooney his best friend, someone he invited to his wedding and they hadn't even met. And then I saw, I was very, I was very touched actually by the, the niece, Ashley, um, Megan's niece, who was also disinvited from the wedding, not invited to the wedding, because we advised that it wasn't a good thing. Well, hold on, they'd been rather close. I think not something so wrong about not having any members of your family apart from your mother sitting all on her own um, at your wedding. And the other thing is that at that wedding, there was so much hope, so much rejoicing for them. It was such a golden day. Um, and now this. We didn't all... There was no racial feeling of anything. It, it was totally positive. It was marvellous that we were going to have a biracial princess. 
absolutely marvellous. Um, it was thrilling, breath of fresh air, and all that. By the way, actually, the last person they said breath of fresh air was Sarah Ferguson. That didn't turn out well. <laughs> well, you mentioned two things here. I got to go back to one. As you said, there could be a divorce looming, and then there's the other word that you kind of just glossed over because it's already been scheduled, right? King Charles's coronation. Yes, well, that's going to be a big one because, other, of course, they will be invited. Um, I mean, the the strength, the strong card that the, the palace has is not to comment unless, you know, what the Queen said, never explain, never explain. But unless there is an absolutely direct attack um, from the book, which comes out in January. I mean, it's a relentless, isn't it? It's a relentless fusillade of half-truths and accusations. But there will be an invitation, whether or not they come or find out that they're unavoidably watching television that day. I don't know. (laughs) But but, um, as to the, the possibility of the divorce, it really depends upon her. Is she so voraciously ambitious that she wants to be president of the United States? Good luck with that. Um, and is she so? Uh, is somebody going to come along who's got more status um, and more money? Um, because his status is going to decline, and every time um, that there are these extraordinary outpourings of grief at their mistreatment, his status declines a little bit more. Um, All he's got is being Duke of Sussex. That's all he's got. Of course, he has a distinguished military career, but he couldn't go further in it because he wasn't bright enough. Um, These days, you know, in order to rise through the army, you have to be pretty intelligent. And that's not him. He's an action man. He was a very distinguished Apache helicopter pilot. Um, But those days are over. And his days of being a member of the... So, Victoria, here's my question. Are you saying this this is not going to end well? I don't think it can end well. No. Um, Sadly not. I don't think it can. Um, Like, I don't know if you've ever seen Stephen Sondheim's Into the Woods, which is about the fairy tales and what happened after, and it wasn't happy. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. The one thing the one thing we can count on is America's obsession with the royal family, America's obsession with shows like The Crown and The Intrigue, and of course, my producer, she can't go to London without making a beeline for the, for the gift shop at the palace. So, for at least from a revenue oh, point of view, well, I'm with her. <laughs> I definitely, um, definitely, I spend all my time in the gift shop, Buckingham Palace. It's marvellous for taking presents to people abroad. Um, no, well, you know, uh, the, the 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 crown will continue. The monarchy is here, but Prince Harry is not part of it any longer. I got it. And interesting, I was reading the New I reading the New York Post the other day, so I read it every day. And after the first documentary came out, and you say that the American people are obsessed, 
Um, but there was out of I read about fifty comments um, on the Meghan and Harry story, and there wasn't one single one that was supportive. Wow! Go figure. That tells you a lot. My thanks to Victoria, to Simon Calder, and to Andrew Wallace. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the latest breaking travel news, you know what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.